I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And so tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I, Gerald R. Ford, have granted a full, free, and absolute pardon unto Richard Nixon. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Read my lips. No new taxes. Tonight's record-shattering victory is the victory of a message that is conservative and is compassionate. Ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for President of the United States, and we are going to make our country great again. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of American History 2. Uh, now this is part one of two podcasts that, with the upcoming US Republican and Democratic Party conventions in mind, uh, will look to trace the evolution of those parties over the past 50 or so years. This episode, as they hold their uh, convention first, we'll be looking at the Republicans. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host Mark McClay. Hello Mark. Hello, welcome. Uh, yes, looking forward to this uh, first of two parts. Uh, hopefully, the, over the course of the two episodes, we'll be able to shed some light on how the two parties arrived at on, in this episode, Donald Trump, and then in the next episode, Hillary Clinton, as their respective nominees, but also just to kind of discuss some of the fascinating twists and turns that have occurred in American politics over the past 50 years. I should just say as a slight disclaimer at this point, this is not an exhaustive discussion of events. Um, when we conceived this, it seemed like a great idea, and then I realised trying to cram 50 years of political history into one hour is uh, going to be a bit of a challenge. Yep, quite right. Uh, but to help us overcome that challenge, we are delighted to be joined by the University of Oxford's Paddy Andalich. Now, much like our previous guest, Joe Ryan Hume, uh, Paddy has recently done pioneering research on the Democratic Party from the 1970s onwards, but has graciously agreed to join us for the Republican podcast as well. So, welcome, Paddy. Thank you. Uh, delighted to be here. Long-time listener, first-time contributor. So, uh, <laughs> looking forward to, uh, uh, to contributing to both of these. So, you just tell us a little bit, just a minute or so, on your, your recent research. Yes, well, um, as you said, I'm ploughing a very similar furrow to uh, one of the previous guests, Joe Ryan Hume. We're, um, I think, part of a, of a, I suppose you call it a, a new wave of scholarship, which is l looking again at liberalism after the 1960s. It's sort of our contention that, um, that there's been far too much attention given to conservatism, uh, which is why I'm delighted to be here to talk about the Republicans for an hour. <laughs> um, but my research in particular looks at uh, the Democratic Party in Congress between 1972 and 1984 and at the particular struggles that the party has to um, to conceive a popular and sort of you know, election-winning version of post-Great Society liberalism. All right, great. Well, looking forward to hearing more about that on the next episode anyway. Yes, absolutely, when we come to cover the Democrats. So before we really get into discussing the Republican Party over the past 50 years, since we're releasing these podcasts to coincide with the opening of the, the party conventions, I was wondering if, for a question for both of you, if there is a particular Republican convention that stands out for you as, as worthy, particularly worthy of comment. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm going to go for the, the quite obvious choice here, and I'm going to go for 1964 in the, the lovely named Cow Palace in San Francisco, um, where the, the Republican Party nominates Barry Goldwater to be its nominee. Um, the <clears throat> Barry Goldwater at the time, to try and give you a sense of where he stood in the party, was probably was on such the edge of the ideological spectrum that is sort of akin to had Bernie Sanders won the Democratic nomination this year. You know, he was just inside the party mainstream without being completely out with it, but it was really, a, a, you know, a, a great change to have him nominated so conservative, was he? Um, and he has some parallels to this year. I mean, for example, a Stop Goldwater movement um, emerged in 1964 and proved just as useless at stopping Goldwater as the, the Stop Trump movement has been at stopping Trump. 
Um, and in 1964 is fascinating. It's this raucous convention. You've got Nelson Rockefeller, Doyen of the liberal Eastern establishment and the grassroots conservatives baiting and slandering each other on stage. Jackie Robinson, a famous African-American baseball player and Republican at the time, compares it to being, you know, in Nazi Germany, uh, such was a hostility felt uh, from many of the southern delegations that were growing in strength in the Republican Party at the time. And it was an election that would trigger the process for the GOP to become more ideologically conservative like it is today, although the story is much more complicated as we're going to discuss in the rest of the podcast. Uh, I suppose for me, the one that stands out is uh, the convention of 1976, Kansas City, Missouri. is the last time that the Republicans had an actual contested convention. For those who don't contest it, means that's when the, the party arrives at its convention without having settled on its nominee. Um, and of course, uh, anybody who's been following the uh, Republican race this year will uh, should have seen some of the talk about the possibility of a contested convention and whether or not they could be able to stop Trump that way. Um, so in 76, you have your incumbent, pre- you have the incumbent president, Gerald Ford, who assumed office after Nixon was forced to resign, uh, over Watergate. Um, and Ford is, uh, fighting off a challenge from the California governor, uh, Ronald Reagan. And Reagan is running as this sort of authentically conservative alternative to Ford. Um, so Reagan does very well. He wins a number of key states, you know, particularly big delegate prizes like Texas and California. Uh, and so by the time they get to the convention, Ford is leading in delegates and in votes, but not by a huge margin. And he hasn't got, um, he hasn't got a majority to clinch it on the first ballot. So the convention becomes the site for all these kind of exciting machinations and schemes by the, the Ford and Reagan campaigns in order to try and win the nomination. Um, I won't discuss those in detail here, but I recommend Rick Perlstein's book, The Invisible Bridge, for those who want to look at it properly. Um, but Reagan ends up stumbling when he uh, announces that he's going to put the liberal Pennsylvania Senator Richard Schweiker on his ticket. He's sort of a bid for party unity, but ends up alienating most of his conservative backers. Jesse Helms is a, a key supporter of his, uh, tries to draft someone else uh, <laughs> to be the, 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 conservative, uh, the conservative alternative. So it all sort of collapses uh, terribly and... and, and uh, Ford wins the nomination, but Reagan then delivers this famous stemwinder of a concession speech, which apparently moves a number of delegates who'd voted for Ford to to publicly say that they'd made a mistake and yeah. they should give the uh, give the nomination to to Reagan. So this kind of really cements uh, Reagan as the conservative champion and puts him in pole position for uh, 1980 when he does get the nomination. So that's two conventions that I think we'll come back to as we discuss the evolution of the Republican Party. They might come up. They might come up. (laughs) Uh, But let's go back to basics for our listeners. The Republicans, otherwise known as the the Grand Old Party or sometimes the Party of Lincoln, they symbolised for reasons uh, that are too complicated and obscure to go into here by an elephant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Quickly, I think we should outline the very basic historical information about the party and where it came from. Uh, Mark, since the Republicans, they feature quite heavily in your own research into the 1960s. Can you give us a quick rundown of the party up to the 1960s? You have one minute. Yes, so very briefly, founded as a sectional party, purely fighting for northern interests uh, before the Civil War. Their first president is the the long-forgotten and obscure Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Look up your history books, you might well find them. Wikipedia, I think he's in there. Um, So following the Civil War, uh, the Grand Ole Party, as you said it's known, uh, becomes until the 1930s, generally speaking, the, the natural party of government. They win far more elections than the Democrats do. And while the South, the South is almost, almost always solid for the Democrats, the Republicans tend to secure the more populous North and the growing West. And so by the 1920s, I mean, you've had the brief interrogum of Theodore Roosevelt, who dabbles a bit in using government in ways that, you know, shocks many old guard Republicans. But by the 1920s, it's generally established as a party of big business and small government, you know, of individualism. Um, and this is all great um, until the Great Depression hits and Americans fall out of love with businessmen and realise that they would quite like government to step in and help them eat. Um, and Franklin Roosevelt then passes a new deal, which we've discussed on many occasions uh, in the podcast, which kind of perplexes Republicans for the next three decades. Some in the party want to run as New Deal-like candidates, sort of accepting 
um, the basic tenets of the New Deal, and they're disparaged as Me Too Republicans by their fellow Conservatives. Um, and others continue to hate the New Deal, such as Barry Goldwater, and want the to return to the, the country to the 1920s level of government ASAP. Um, and that's roughly where we're up to by 1960. Fantastic. And I think it's important to sketch out the importance of the Republicans uh, as the party of Lincoln and the attachment that African-American voters uh, had to them for a long period after the, the Civil War, up to the period we'll be discussing today. Paddy, uh, can you offer some comment on that? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I think this is something that can often be surprising to people who look at uh, the partisan identification of most African-American voters today. Um, a Democratic presidential candidates sort of r- routinely win more than 90% of the African-American vote, and you see similarly lopsided splits uh, in congressional and state elections. But that alignment is very much a product of the 1960s. And in fact, from the 1860s through to the 1930s, those African-Americans that, that could vote were almost always Republicans. Democratic Party uh, was the party of the South. It was the party of white supremacy and of racial terrorism. Um, and it's uh, but it, that starts to shift with the New Deal. Um, and although so New Deal programs, as has been discussed, is not explicitly targeted at African-Americans, they are very much helped by them um, and they, they are involved in efforts to shape them uh, you know, principally because African Americans are disproportionately hit, impacted by the Great Depression. Uh, in fact, there's a, a very famous editorial in the Pittsburgh Courier uh, in 1932, which is a newspaper with a predominantly black readership, which, which tells its readers, my friends, go turn Lincoln's picture to the wall, that debt has been paid in full, and encouraging them to go out and vote for Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but it's, African-Americans are still really a contested voter block until, uh, un, until the Civil and Voting Rights Act in the, Act in the 1960s, uh, when the parties start really polarizing on, on racial issues. In 1960, for example, uh, Richard Nixon and wins about 32% of the African-American vote, which is, you know, it's a margin that Republicans today would kill for. And he, he might well have won it had he yeah. placed a call to uh, Coretta Scott King, as uh, the Kennedys yeah. did. So by the time we get to the, kind of the end of the 1950s, the start of the 1960s, is it in any way accurate to say we're seeing a process of very significant change in voting patterns in the US? Yeah, I mean, I think the 1960s uh, are crucial years in, in trigger, triggering uh, the polarisation of the parties. I mean, as we arrive in the decade, the, the parties are very much coalitions of competing interests rather than these coherent ideological groups we kind of think of uh, in, in modern politics. Um, you know, Republicans, for example, they have Northeastern progressives, they have Mid-Atlantic moderates, they have Midwestern stalwart conservatives, and they have this newly emerging sort of fundamentalist conservatives coming out of the South and West Guys like Paddy Goldwater and Ronald Reagan. Um, yes. And is that what we'd refer to as Sunbelt conservatism? Is yes, that correct yes, yeah, the, yes. The Sunbelt has not yet risen, uh, but it is a bit beginning to dawn, um, if we're going to go up lovely play on words. Um, so all of these groups overlap on some issues, but it's generally quite a wide ideological spectrum. And to take the issue of race, which Paddy just quite eloquently discussed there, as he mentioned, you know, Nixon gets over 30% of the black vote. And at the beginning of the 1960s, when Americans are polled on this issue, they basically see the Republicans and the Democrats as sort of 50-50 on the issue of race. There's no real no terms of split in the perception. Um, and it's well known now that Republicans actually vote for the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act at a higher percentage than the Democrats do, mainly because the Democrats have the Southern Bloc, um, most of whom don't vote for it. The only bloc of Republicans who actually go against um, the the Civil Rights Act are your Barry Goldwater um, and your, your sort of Sunbelt um, conservatives that you mentioned, Malcolm. But and with LBJ signing the bill and with Goldwater voting against it in 1964, Democrats get all the credit with black voters and the very much non-credit with Southern white voters. And what happens in the 1964 election? I mean, a lot happens in the 1964 election. Um, but in the huge losses that Republicans take that year, they're very much concentrated in the Northeastern and the Mid-Atlantic, the sort of progressive and moderate Republicans um, who had voted for the Civil Rights Act. And when the Republican Party begins to recover seats in ni- from 1966 onwards, it is the more conservative seats in areas in the Midwest, West, and predominantly later on in the South, 
uh, where they'd recover in rather than these old areas where it was more progressive. And just to pick up one point, I mean, uh, while, yes, the Republican Party is the more conservative of the two parties as we begin here, it's not until the sort of late 1970s, um, especially the arrival of Reagan um, in 1980 as a party nominee, that you really have the, cap- the party captured by conservatism. Some historians have been uh, sort of erroneously implied that Barry Goldwater's arrival means that all of a sudden conservatism is the Republican Party. That's not the case. There's still those competing factions that I talked about later, but earlier, sorry, but the direction of travel is in the way of conservatism. Right. So, I mean, that's, I'd like to address a the question then to, to Paddy. I mean, Mark, you talked at the start about the 64 convention. I'd actually like to turn my question uh, on Goldwater to, to Paddy to get to his opinion on this. I mean, conservatism in the 60s, it seems to become focused on Goldwater as you know, the man who's going to capture the nomination in 64. I mean, is it accurate to describe Goldwater as Mr. Conservative, as he's sometimes known, and look at him as an avatar of what the Republican Party is going to become? Yes, yeah, broadly, yeah, I think it's that's a, a, an accurate um, a description, though in some ways one of the most interesting things about Goldwater, just to veer off into a cul-de-sac here, is, is the way that Goldwater, the politician, ends up diverging from Goldwater, the symbol, or, Gold, you know, Goldwater's memory in the party in the ensuing decades. Famously, Goldwater is very hostile to elements of the religious right in the 1980s, has several kind of noisy public confrontations with um, Jerry Falwell. And that's the different sort of blocks that Mark was uh, outlining just there. There is always this tension between, uh, in the Republican Party, between those who are of a more sort of libertarian, anti-big government bent and those who are culturally conservative and require some level of government intervention to enforce certain moral codes. Um, but um, to get back to the actual point, I think Goldwater and the 1964 Goldwater campaign um, is really year zero for modern American conservatives, not only ideologically, but in terms of um, of the kind of techniques that Goldwater supporters use to get him uh, to get him the nomination. Um, when Goldwater wins the nomination in 64, he looks in, in many respects like a fairly conventional conservative would in the 1980s. So he's fiscally conservative. He's opposed, um, he's opposed to the Great Society. He's militantly anti-communist. And in the context of the 64 election, it's very, he takes these positions as very damaging, I think. He looks, he ends up looking like an alienating, becomes an alienating hardliner, particularly when he has his convention speech, which we heard, uh, heard in the opening, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, moderation mm-hmm. in defense, in pursuit of justice is no virtue. Um, but for a lot of conservatives, I think there's, there's this sense that Goldwater was right, just, he was just ahead of his time. Um, George Will, he famously writes, um, on the morning of Reagan's inauguration that uh, Goldwater won the election of 1964. It just took 16 years to count the votes. Yes, I mean, uh, yeah, Will's quote is a, is a fascinating... It's one I sometimes take a issue with. I mean, like, as you pointed out, Goldwater is not Reagan in yeah. 1980, is not 1964, but he, he has a point in there somewhere. But the interesting thing in 1964 is as well is the emergence of Ronald Reagan, um, who makes a big splash with his A Time for Choosing Speech, um, which he gives on Goldwater's behalf. At this point, Reagan's a private citizen, um, but he gives, makes such a strong impression. The Goldwater campaign go, "Oh my God, this is amazing! We need to turn this out. We need to. This is so much better than Barry Goldwater. We need to fire this out and fundraise off the back of it." And they do it very successfully, and it highlights that something that might well come. And as you hinted at, you know, '64 is also important for giving a blueprint for conservatives to how to gain power in the GOP through this grassroots direct mailing. Um, even though these moderates will remain important for another decade. But Malcolm, thinking about, you know, Goldwater in a sense that for 1964 is extreme in, its, in his domestic issues, but he, even more so in terms of his approach to foreign policy. I mean, how does he seem to fit into the mainstream of Republican foreign policy thinking at this time? I mean, Goldwater's interesting. He's, he's, he's almost a kind of classic anti-communist cold warrior kind of archetype. But I think he's he's a little mistimed because he becomes candidate at a point where detente, the thawing of relations between US and USSR and between the, the US and the People's Republic of China because uh, of the Sino-Soviet split you know, that's taken place uh, in the late 50s and early 1960s. He is slightly mistimed because of his aggressive anti-Soviet pro-nuclear rhetoric. That's not to say that anti-communism is ceasing to be a thing in the United States. It's still a very powerful force. There's still huge numbers of people in the US who are, you know, vociferously anti-communist, you know, 
anti 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 Soviet. Yeah. You know, there's huge numbers of Democrats are you know violently anti communist. Mm. Uh, and he fits in with a well defined Cold War pattern in terms of foreign foreign relations. Dwight Eisenhower, you know, the last Republican president before uh, Nixon uh, gets elected, was not above using nuclear threats. In, in a fairly overt or covert manner, he had to deal. Eisenhower dealt with more uh, nuclear crises as they they would become known than any other president in American history. Uh, Eisenhower also massively increased the U.S. nuclear arsenal, oversaw a significant amount of covert action in the developing world, and fought the Cold War on a basis of like great military strength, U.S. economic power, and the global reach of of organizations like the CIA. And so I think Goldwater is perhaps reflective of the 1950s attitude towards the Cold War rather than a kind of an emergent mid to late 1960s post-Cuban missile crisis, post-limited test ban treaty, post-Sino-Soviet split mm-hmm. attitude towards the Cold War that we see develop into detente. That's an interesting right. way to think about it. So, but I think it's, we've talked about 1964 and Goldwater and the roots of kind of republicanism and modern conservatism a fair bit. Perhaps best to move on and get through the next few decades, I would suggest, because we've got a lot to cover. Sounds good. Uh, so the Republicans eventually regain the White House, as we've mentioned, in 1968 with the victory of the comeback kid, Richard Nixon. <laughs> he finally, he said, you know, when he, when he lost the race for the governorship of California, you wouldn't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Well, he's back for everyone to kick around and for him to kick everyone else around. Yep. Uh, so Nixon's back. We've covered him in a previous podcast. Briefly though, I mean, how does Nixon change the Republican Party in order to win the election? Yeah, so I would argue that Nixon doesn't change the Republican Party. Um, and I always kind of think of Nixon as a, as a bellwether for the, for the GOP. And what I mean by that is, you know, whatever the mean ideological point of the GP is, Nixon will find it and position himself there smack bang in the middle. Um, at least on domestic policy anyway, because despite what some more sympathetic historians argue, Nixon doesn't really care about domestic policy. Um, when it comes to domestic policy, all he really cares about is what will win him an election. Well, I mean, he, he, I mean, he, de- he delegates responsibility for domestic policy to members of his. Yeah, his I mean, staff. like you know, John Ehrlichman, Ehrlichman uh, you know, the points well, is basically it? running the domestic yeah, presidency. You know, yeah. Nixon's like, don't talk to me. I'm dealing with China. Don't talk to me. I'm dealing with Vietnam. That type of thing. Um, and this is why I think it's all the more telling that Nixon, you know, in relation to your point of the Republican Party, Nixon, who, when he was running in 1960, he courts the support of, of Nixon Rockefeller, who I've already mentioned sort of doyen of the liberal establishment, has by 1968, he, Nixon realizes that to be successfully nominated, he has to pucker up for the former, for the formerly segregationist Southerner, uh, Strom Thurmond. And the center and the gra- gravity of the party between 60 and 68 was moving from the northeast to the south and west, the, you know, the sun belt that you mentioned earlier. And in the 1968, Nixon runs for what he calls the Forgotten American, uh, very much picking up on an old FDR uh, line, but running with it differently. And he sort of draws a clear line between Republicans and Democrats on government spending. Essentially, dog whistles that a Nixon administration will cut the war on poverty, which have become associated with, is primarily with black Americans, um, but leave alone things like Medicaid and Social Security that benefited the majority of Americans. And through this strategy, he sorts of hopes to pick up these disaffected white Democrats in the North that lived in the cities and who feared that African American advancement um, would, would, would sort of hurt their economic prospects. And they resented these sort of liberal Democrats becoming known as li- limousine liberals. Um, who they believed only cared about minorities. And he also strikes out for this whole law and order thing, which I think we've touched on before, which is a bit of a fleeting issue that bubbled up because of the rise in crime rates and race riots. And with the help of these forgotten Americans, as he called them, Nixon just squeaks home to victory in 68. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, I think you're on point there. We're not really giving you listeners value for money if we're not going to have any violent disagreements. (laughs) I think, um, you're particularly right, Mark, with the description of Nixon as, as a sort of bellwether for the Republican Party. I think he, he yeah, he it is useful to track his career, and you can watch the Republican Party evolving, and he is he reflects it as much as he as much as he shapes it. Um, I think it's also very fascinating that Nixon is often credited as being the quote last liberal president um by by so many many journalists you know people it was a like, Noam Chomsky quote wasn't it? yeah like Chomsky yeah. said that in fact yeah and I, I think that's true up to a point he does um he does pursue things that would be thought of as liberal by any president today so the family assistance plan uh, which would have created a guaranteed minimum income he offers national health care reform 
uh, deal that Ted Kennedy said he always regretted not pursuing. That was in some respects, you know, more ambitious than, than the healthcare that Obama was able to get through in, in 2009, 2010, sorry. Um, uh, but equally, I think you're right that Nixon's just, just not hugely interested in domestic policy. Um, when his, um, when his advisor, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who's a, a liberal Democrat, comes to him with the ideas of the family assistance plan, what he's telling him is, is that the reason he should pursue it is that he has an opportunity to do something big and historic and it'll get his, you know, it, it, people will credit him with having saved the welfare system. So I think the way to get Nixon interested in domestic policy, um, reform of any kind is to tell him that, that, it, that it will just be a great idea and it'll look really good. And it'll appeal to um, his le- yeah, legacy. Exactly. He wants legacy. to great in the court of history. Mm. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I, th- I think a lot of the initiative uh, on the domestic front is coming from uh, the Democratic Congress. Nixon is actually the, the first president since Zachary Taylor, way back in the 19th century, who, who comes to power without winning a majority in either house of Congress. Um, so we have things like, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, which is often credited to Nixon, is as much a product of um, Washington Senator Henry Jackson, who's a, a, a Democrat, as, as anyone else. Yeah, and just to pick up on the, the point you mentioned there, you know, the entire time we're talking about the Republicans here, all the way up until 1994 and from 1954, they will not control both houses of Congress at the same time. They're very much the more minority party. Um, so Malcolm... Uh, you know, what effect do you think the, you know, Nixon, who famously ran his, you know, his foreign policy, basically him and Henry Kissinger, like most notably their achievements in opening the door to China, the arrival of detente. I mean, as how do you think this affects the Republican Party's approach to world affairs more broadly? You know, are Nixon and Kissinger just, you know, out there by themselves um, on their little island or are they part of a larger sort of larger milieu that's going on i think i mean with foreign policy authority becomes vested wholly in nixon and kissinger i mean kissinger's always bigged up his his importance as you know the the architect of you know nixonian foreign policy i mean if you listen to things like the tapes and read the transcripts nixon is making a lot of the running here and kissinger is a massive sycophant Yes, Mr. President. No, Mr. President. All this kind of thing. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he is a massive sycophant around Nixon and he puts up with all the abuse, the anti-Semitic abuse that Nixon hurls at him. But, you know, in broad terms, foreign policy authority vested in Nixon and Kissinger, no one else really gets much of a look in. I mean, so while Nixon, for example, claim, basically claimed detente with the Soviet Union for himself, I'd argue that it's uh, your old friend Lyndon Johnson. He's the one who really gets the ball rolling. I think in the 1960s. It's about time someone said it. I mean, I think the, the, the cornerstone of detente is the 1968 Nuclear Non Proliferation Treaty, I would argue. I mean, something that demonstrates that the USA and the USSR can really productively work together on matters of global common interest. So I, that's, that's where we see the kind of, you know, the groundwork for detente. And I think despite the successes of detente and opening relations with the People's Republic of China, there's foreign policy disasters. You know, Nixon is held up as a great foreign policy president and he did have great achievements, but they were absolutely... Dis- the 1971 Indo-Pakistani War and the Bangladeshi genocide are one example. Uh, I mean, more widely, I think, despite this kind of outward, outwardly exemplary record on, on nuclear arms control, you know, with the SALT negotiations and all that kind of thing, <coughs> Nixon and Kissinger don't actually really believe in disarmament. They don't really believe in non-proliferation. They don't believe in them as ends in and of themselves. For them, it's all about it's about interests and all that kind of thing. They're not. There's more powerful forces. Who's friends with who? Who's enemies with who? Yeah. That type of thing. Uh, who has interests where? I mean, they, for example, they secretly support Israel's ongoing nuclear program. I mean, for Nixon and Kissinger, it's all about interests and alliances. And they also have huge blind spots when, when it comes to things that would seem obvious as historians looking in hindsight. Why did they not get this? But a lot of time, Nixon and Kissinger don't get economics. They don't get the global economy. And so, for example, they give tacit permission, Nixon particularly, to the Shah of Iran to allow him to raise oil prices, you know, to whatever level he feels is appropriate so he can buy American weapons and all that kind of thing. 
And this contributes to the 1973-74 oil shock that hammers the global economy. Nixon and Kissinger just don't get how the global economy works and what the results of their kind of like this perceptual, intricate spider web of deals and alliances and permissions and interests and all that kind of thing, what it would actually do. They simply didn't get that despite their claims, the US couldn't take it. So how do how did the larger party fit into this? Like, is uh, Republicans basically ignored? Congressional Republicans just ignored during this time? They, have, they had very little regard for issues that many congressional Republicans and Democrats alike are beginning to take much more seriously. I'd say notably transnational human rights issues. They don't have much time for that kind of thing. Despite the talk, Nixon and Kissinger are still cold warriors and they fight to prevent the expansion of Soviet influence as hard as they can. So they support brutal dictatorships in South America, such as you know, Pinochet in Chile, Sub-Saharan Africa, such as you know Mobutu Sese Seko in, in Zaire. They're prime examples of this. And they also managed to really piss off the Europeans with some like really ill-judged initiatives like the 1973 Year of Europe, which was just a disaster all round, uh, only served to create distance between Washington, Bonn, Paris and everywhere else. And I think as Paddy mentioned earlier, by 1976 and the Ford era, detente is seen as weakness, you know, not just by Ronald Reagan, but a considerable number of his Republican supporters, you know, both in Congress and in the country at large, advocating a much, much tougher stance against the USSR. So I think detente and human rights and all these things become major issues that, that set Nixon and Kissinger apart from the mainstream of opinion. So, Malcolm, I think what I kind of want to get at here, what we're trying to be getting at with these questions, is the, the perception of the Republican Party is a sort of the more competent in foreign affairs. You know, where this comes from, I, I always remember the, an episode of The West Wing where they, they talk about if a... If you're running an election on, and the, the American people are looking for a daddy, as he, as they call it in this, that, you know, to take care of foreign affairs, they'll elect a Republican. If they're looking for a mummy to k- take care of, I mean, it was very sexist now looking back at it. And then, domestic, domestic politics, then they'll elect, um, a Democrat. You know, so in 1968, Nixon himself told reporters that if voters were choosing on foreign affairs, then he'd win. If it was domestic politics, he'd lose. And this has been quite an enduring belief, whether it's true or not, in American politics. So does Nixon, with this detente, as you said, becomes a weakness, actually jeopardise this Republican tough guy image? I know I've asked a lot of you in that No, question. no, I think that one of the reasons that Republicans seem to be associated with kind of like, you know, being better on foreign policies, because in many ways during the Cold War, the Republicans are winners. The Cold War begins on the watch of a Democratic president. And... You know, Truman's predecessor Roosevelt is implicated in this as well. The Democrats allegedly lose China in 1949 when the the Chinese communists uh, under Mao Zedong uh, beat Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. They They allow, in air quotes, the Soviets to get the bomb in the same year. They fail to win the Korean War, which a Republican president in the form of Eisenhower goes on to resolve, although not really. Uh, they get the US involved in Vietnam and fail to win it and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Eisenhower vastly increases the US nuclear arsenal as a you know, Republican president under his new look program and promises massive retaliation against the USSR. So in the late, so in the 1950s, Truman looks like a bit of a failure and Eisenhower, a much, much more interventionist active president than he's frequently given credit for. Then, you know, in broad terms, gets the US back on top and Nixon has the record to make concessions to the communist world. I mean, the famous phrase, only Nixon can go to China. It's precisely because he's been such a staunch anti-communist since the very start of his political career that the openings to the USSR and the, and the People's Republic look like great feats of statesmanship rather than weakness. You know, it appears to be negotiating from strength and confidence and anti-communism. I mean, when in fact one of the reasons for the moves towards Nixonian form of detente and arms control is because of Soviet parity in terms of nuclear capability. You know, Nixon and Kissinger also try to manage these vast US defence expenditures. I mean, it's really spiralled out of control because of Vietnam. I mean, Vietnam, its peak was costing $2 billion a month to run the war. So the, the so-called Nixon doctrine like places much more of a burden for defence on regional allies defending themselves, you know, but promises this nuclear security umbrella. And I don't think this is just an economic decision. I mean, there's a declining taste for internationalism in the US. You know, almost a kind of, and this is an awkward term to use, almost neo-isolationism, even though isolationism wasn't really ever a thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this lack of taste for internationalism. So fearful of a kind of perceived U.S. decline, because the U.S. is seen to be a declining power at this point, 
Nixon and Kissinger, I mean, they're trying to rationalise spending and their commitments abroad in order to actually maintain the so-called Pax Americana, kind of the, the American century, you know, American commitment to the Cold War to contain the USSR and secure America's position as, as the, the leading global power. So it's a very complex kind of interplay of forces and ideas and everything going on here, okay. I would argue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, we can't talk about Nixon. Sorry, I'm switching back to domestic policy for a moment, because <laughs> I've blathered on a lot about foreign policy here. Uh, switching back to domestic policy, uh, there's a kind of, there's a little commented upon moment in the Nixon presidency that I think deserves attention. Uh, now, it's the Watergate scandal, <laughs> which no one's really studied in any great detail, which amazes me, uh, and the political fallout from that calamity. I mean, how does this affect the Republican Party? Are they all tarred uh, with Tricky Dick's very dirty brush? Um, yes, and they are... Um, it has a very deleterious effect on the Republican Party um, in 1974-75. The GOP really slumps in the 74 congressional elections, uh, not only because of the Watergate scandal, but because it coincides with the height of the recession of 1973-75, to 75, which was, up to that point, the worst since the Great Depression. Um, and the Republicans are sort of uh, widely seen as having been responsible for both. Um, and... By uh, well, by 1974, only about 18% of the electorate are self-identifying as Republican. 18%? Are, 18% are self-identifying as Much higher numbers for if you're asking liberal conservative, but the people who are identifying with the party is very, very low. And you have the people of Massachusetts going around with bumper stickers yeah. saying, don't blame me, I voted for McGovern. Absolutely. The RNC starts producing badges that read Republicans are people too, <laughs> which is very sort of plaintive message. And in fact, at one point in 1975, the RNC has to basically basically shutter its doors because it hasn't got money to fund its day-to-day expenses. So it briefly shuts down. So the, you have the new president comes in, Gerald Ford, who is you know, fairly popular initially. You know, he's widely seen as sort of honest and plain dealing. There's a story that when he comes, that when he was being vetted for the vice presidency, and he's put in for the vice presidency because the expectation is that he will take over, the Secret Service prepares an enormous dossier on him, just going back to find out whether there's anything, anything at all. They go back to his hometown and ask people he was at school with whether he was a dirty tackler when he was on the football team. Um, so they really, really comb through his, uh, his background and find, and find nothing. Um, so, but he, he comes in and he ends up, he, his poll numbers are fairly high and he ends up squandering a lot of that goodwill when about a month after he takes office, he issues a comprehensive pardon for Nixon. And the pardon is very sort of, is, is very, um, broadly worded. It says, you know, all crimes he has committed and any, you know, any others. Is there anything else we haven't found out yet? Um, Ford says uh, that it will bring the, quote, long national nightmare to an end. And a lot of historians say that it was probably on balance a good decision, um, that the that it would have been destructive for the nation sort of nationally and psychically. Yeah, Nixon could have been going through the courts for two years, exactly. story after exactly. story. Yeah. But there's this widespread sense that there was some sort of deal or a cover-up, um, which I don't think is just, is not justified when you, when you look back at the records. A corrupt bargain to use and a yeah, phrase from American history. A corrupt bargain, absolutely. Um, so in, in the congressional elections of 74 and, you know, Ford pardons Nixon in September 1974, the elections are two months later. Ford's reputation, I think, recovers by about 1976 and he nearly wins the election, but it's very, very damaging in the election itself. And the Democrats end up winning 49 seats in the House, four in the Senate. Remember, of course, the, the Republicans um, were a minority party in the Congress anyway, and they're now an even smaller minority. The Democrats have veto-proof majorities in both chambers. So it's a real nadir for the Republican Party. And, I mean, there's also kind of at the same time, you know, as the stuff about Watergate going on and everything, there comes out the all the stuff about the CIA's dirty tricks and covert operations, you know, since its founding. Uh, and... You know, this creates, you know, you have the, the Church Commission in the Senate, the, the Pike Commission in Congress, and you have the Rockefeller, uh, Commission, all investigating the CIA. And this drags in, you know, Republican and Democrat politicians, you know, former presidents are kind of like, you know, accused of knowing about all these, you know, assassination attempts on Castro and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And just to pick up as well, I think there's actually an argument that you could say Watergate in the long run actually does help the Republican Party. In the short term, it takes a hit. But if Watergate does one thing above all else, it reduces faith in government. And for the party that advocates smaller government, it's not a bad thing for Americans to not particularly trust officials. Um, And also it feeds the conservative movement 
a sort of this idea that look the vast liberal conspiracy against us and the media and everything comes true look what they did to Richard Nixon can I say I think it contributes to declining trust in government oh yeah it's already on the decline it's already vastly on on the decline in terms of and a lot of that is to do with kind of like emerging conspiratorial viewpoints about the role of government you know overreaching government all these things you know the Kennedy assassination is one of the Johnson's credibility gaps as well the credibility gap all that kind of stuff Pentagon Papers, yeah. all that kind of thing. So both real and imagined conspiracies contribute. Yeah. So let us move on, because we've not really uh, touched upon the rise of the religious right in American politics. Yeah, I mean, j- just to mention briefly, I mean, what you see emerging in the 1970s is the groups like Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority, um, who campaign on issues such as, you know, being against abortion after, you know, Roe versus Wade, things like school prayer, being against the sort of feminist view um, that had emerged where that, that, was, that was promoting that women should work, whereas the moral majority wanted women to be back taking home, taking care of children and the family. Anti-gay rights. Anti-gay all rights, these all these kind of things. Yeah. And so what you have is you get a, a concerted effort to get them into the Republican Party because they weren't always partisanly affiliated. Um, and you have this sort of merging of economic conservatism with evangelical Christianity. And as Paddy mentioned earlier, this is a significant shift from Goldwater, who didn't really have these cultural views. But what it means for, like, if we look at what happened to Goldwater in 64, it means that by 1980, when Ronald Reagan will come to run for president, there is another base from which Republicans draw upon. And if we just you know interject for a moment, I think it's, it's interesting that evangelical Christianity begins to influence domestic policy so much. Because it's been an important force in foreign policy in fighting the Cold War since the since the Cold War emerged. I mean, it is. I mean, the Cold War in many ways you can characterize it as as a religious conflict between you know Christian United States and heathen atheistic Soviet Union and all that kind. Of, but the role of you know religion in foreign policy, especially mm-hmm. American foreign policy, has been critically important. Yeah. For a long time. Yeah. I mean, the, the reason it gets into domestic policy, I would actually say, is, <clears throat> is actually because, in many ways, of a Republican, uh, and Errol Warren, who was the Chief Justice of the United States and had been a Republican governor of California, um, appointed by Eisenhower, I believe, in the 50s. And it was the Supreme Court, under his leadership, um, passed all these sort of liberal um, decisions in the 1960s, which then bled into the 1970s as well with Roe versus Wade and everything. So it's actually someone who was initially a Republican, albeit a progressive one from California, um, who leads to this sort of backlash, which feeds the the cultural conservatism that will become a key defining feature of the Republican Party going forward. And also the man who covered up the fact that it was the Martians that assassinated JFK. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, conspiracy theory notwithstanding, uh, let's turn to Ronald Reagan. Okay, so we've touched on Reagan's influence on the 1980s when we were talking with like Joe uh, in a previous podcast earlier this year, but we've never really discussed them from a Republican perspective. We talked about liberalism in Reagan's America. And I mean, Reagan is, I mean, still, even now, he is still a gigantic figure for many Republicans. I mean, why? I mean, why is it? Is he, why is he so loved by Republicans then and now? Yeah, I mean, Reagan's have essentially been been deified within the Republican Party almost in in recent years. Um, you have things like uh, the Reagan Legacy Project, which is set up by the tax reformer Grover Norquist, which um, aims to name something after Reagan in every county in the United States. Um, and you have you know the Reagan Presidential Library uh, hosted debates for Republican candidates in two thousand eight, two thousand twelve, and twenty sixteen. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of humorous videos on YouTube of, uh, of various Republican candidates trying to position themselves as the most Reagan-esque. Um, and I think, I mean, I think part of the reason for that is, um, I mean, it's lack of choice. Um, if you're a conservative Republican and you want a president to venerate, you know, who are you going to go for? George W. Bush is terrible. George H.W. Bush raises taxes and then he loses. Nixon narrowly avoids prison. Eisenhower is a bit of a squish and Hoover's responsible for the Great Depression. Uh, or is held responsible for the Great Depression. Uh, do you know what? I'd, lo- I'd, love it if, I'd love it if Dwight Eisenhower was here with us. <laughs> You're a bit of a squish, <laughs> General Eisenhower. <laughs> Eisenhower was a tough customer. Oh, I know, but I mean, I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of his... Conservatism. Yeah, his conservatism. Yeah, no. he's, he's a champion of moderate republicanism. 
and I think for most conservatives he is is symptomatic of a kind of me too republicanism they sort of go along to get along with with the new deal and with uh, the prevailing sort of prevailing liberalism Eisenhower's getting to the hole in three republicanism exactly <laughs> exactly yeah um, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's the whole story. It's a slightly sort of flippant way to put it. I think there are, you know, there are a great many conservatives who are inspired to enter politics in the, in the 1980s because of Reagan. I mean, you know, he's undeniably charismatic. He's exciting. Um, I think. Um, funny. He's funny. And, and one of the things, if, if, um, I mean, if you compare, we mentioned Reagan's speech at Time for Choosing uh, in 1964. Uh, but one of the things that is missing from that, uh, if you kind of like the, the sort of Reagan cocktail of the 1980s, is Reagan's optimism. His, his speech in 64 is very kind of blood curdling and talks about, um, talks about the huge threat posed by the Soviet Union. Um, by the 1980s, he's, he's putting, he's putting forward this, you know, America will be great again, morning again in America. Um, you know, it feel it just feels he can he makes it feel good to be a conservative. He makes conservative seem as conservative seem optimistic and and um, selling conservatism uh, yeah, with a smile. Selling conservatism with a smile, exactly. He, it's 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 something that is uh, forward thinking. And um, there's a remark from uh, somebody already mentioned, New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who says. Uh, in 1980, that um, it's, it, it's occurred to me, damn it, that the Republican Party has become the party of ideas without us noticing. <laughs> so it, it seems by the 1980s that it, the, the energy is on the side of the Republicans. They yeah. really are the sort of the coming thing. Yeah, and I mean, I, oh, sorry, sorry no, I was just going to, I was just going to say that you know, I think that feeds into the one thing that I think is underestimated about Reagan's legacy and why he's so deified. Is, and it's pretty, you pretty much touched on it. Is that Reagan's a winner? Yeah. Um, you know, in 1966, against all seeming odds, he becomes governor of California, and then was continually re-elected in a state that, for most of its history, has been one of the most progressive in the country. Um, he then wins in 1980 and 1984 in presidential elections by landslide margins, and uh, you know, in Republican imagining of how it happened, he only goes and wins the bloody Cold War. Sorry, Malcolm. Um, and po <laughs> political parties like it when their leaders win because it means they're all in power. Um, and arguably, Reagan then goes and wins another election um, when his vice president, George H.W. Bush, wins in 1988, partially on the back of Reagan's continued popularity. Yeah, I think within the kind of... Um, and I think within the within the sort of conservative uh, mythology of the 20th century, Reagan is a kind of mirror image FDR. He's someone who steps in and saves the country from, um, from, you know, kind of liberal malaise and government overreach and, and weakness on the world stage. Um, just as a sort of, as a kind of side point, we've mentioned the religious right. Um, it's, it's well worth mentioning that Reagan actually has a fractious relationship with many religious conservatives. Um, and this, I think, illustrates many of the tensions in the uh, in the conservative movement that often go unexplored, even at this moment when it is, you know, it's arguably its moment of greatest triumph in the 20th century. Um, Reagan opposes Proposition 6 in, in 1978, it's a California ballot initiative that would have barred gays and lesbians from working in the state's public schools, and he's sort of instrumental in ensuring that it's defeated. Um, Jerry Falwell condemns him for it and says Reagan's going to have to answer to religious conservatives in 1980, and he's not going to like what the judgment they passed. Um, when in office uh, in 1981, you know, he's, uh, he, he appoints his first um, his first Supreme Court justice, uh, who is uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, and O'Connor is you know is partially uh, well, O'Connor is basically a pro-choice uh, nominee, and a lot of religious conservatives oppose her because it, um, it's they suspect correctly that she's not interested in overturning Roe v. Wade, which is something that that the, the becomes uh, ruling, a litmus test. Yes, becomes a litmus test for conservatives. And Roe v. Wade is the 1973 ruling which uh, guarantees the right to an abortion. So. Democrats frequently have accused Republicans and continue to, you know, accuse Republicans of barely concealed like dog whistle politics on on race, as it would become called during the Reagan Bush era. I mean, is this in any is this in any way true? Are like you know Reagan and you know later, you know Bush, are they engaging in kind of like barely concealed racial politics, racist politics? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I say is that Reagan never to the best of my knowledge, ever says anything nakedly racist. 
at least no, no, nothing that is recorded in history books. Unlike Johnson and Nixon, for example, who often said many racist things, but actually had very strong records on, on civil rights. Quite, you know, it's quite surprising, something Nixon's not known that well for, but he actually did quite a lot in terms of race. Nevertheless, Reagan launches his campaign in 1980 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, um, which is just miles from where the civil rights murders, um, famous at the time in 1964, occur. And during the speech, he advocates states' rights um, quite firmly, um, which is more of a foghorn than a dog whistle, um, I would argue. Reagan also famously railed against welfare queens in Chicago and anti-poverty programs more generally with all the sort of racial connotations that they pulled. And in 1981, Lee Atwater, who was a political operator out of South Carolina, I believe, who worked in Reagan's White House, gave an interview um, where he outlined this approach. And I'm, I'm going to substitute the N-word for, for, to, for, to just say black here, but it says, you start out in 1954 by saying black, black, black. By 1968, you can't say black. That hurts you. That backfires. So you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract. Now you're talking about cutting taxes. And all these things you're talking about are totally economic things and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than saying, uh, I can imagine you can guess what I was going to say. Atwater would then produce a sort of famous Willie Horton ad in 1988 that told the story of the black man, uh, Horton, who was released on a weekend furlough uh, from prison during which he raped and assaulted a woman and her fiancé. Um, and this linked to the governor um, of at the time, Michael Dukakis um, of Massachusetts, who at the time was running against George H.W. Bush in 1988 and who was ahead of Bush in the polls. Um, so I think it's fair to say there's definitely um, some dog whistling and the odd bit of foghorning that has gone on in Republican politics when it comes to race, yeah. So speaking of Bush, actually, you know, former CIA director, vice president, has a fairly brief single-term presidency, uh, but at the end of the Cold, you know, overseas, you know, the, the end of the Cold War, the first Gulf War, all that kind of thing. What does he, I mean, what does his kind of brief presidency tell us about the Republican Party as it moves into the 1990s and moves into this post-Cold War period? Um, well, I think, I think Bush is, uh, the Thing, one of the things I think people don't understand about the Bush family is that they're actually a fairly, they represent a fairly moderate strain of republicanism. Mm -hmm. um, when Bush had challenged Reagan in, uh, in 1980, um, he had done so as, uh, as the more, as the more moderate candidate. He dismissed Reagan's sort of supply side economics as, as, as voodoo economics. Mm -hmm. And so he, he. Never lived that down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Never lived that down. And he represents, but he represents a, a more moderate wing of the GOP. Um, although he's still, <clears throat> he's still fundamentally a kind of a, a Sundog conservative. He's still to the right of kind of moderate or liberal Republicans, as you would recognize them in, say, the sort of 1950s and 1960s. Um, he, tr I think, attempts to move the Republican Party in some ways back towards a more, a more moderate ground, um, particularly on domestic politics yeah. he talks about wanting a um a kinder gentler nation uh in his accepted speech uh he's accepting the nomination in 1988 which apparently prompts nancy reagan to to remark privately kinder or gentler than who um, not like her to be defensive of ronnie exactly <laughs> but there's um Yes, but he, he largely fails and he ends up in 1992 fighting off a, um, a very kind of conservative populist, um, uh, insurgent campaign from, uh, Pat Buchanan, who'd formerly been in, uh, in the Nixon White House and puts together a coalition that in some respects looks very much, uh, like, uh, Donald Trump's this year. Um, and in fact, if, if Trump, um, if Trump wins, uh, then I, I, I think a lot of historians will talk about Buchanan as the kind of, as the gold water to, to Trump's Reagan. Um, there's a, a, an instance when, when, uh, gold, uh, Buchanan gives his concession speech at the 1992 convention, um, having, you know, run a very strong campaign. He gives this very kind of, um, populist, culturally conservative, um, uh, address in which he's, he uses the term, he uses the term, culture war um and which leads the uh uh the columnist Molly Ivans to remark that uh, the speech probably sounded better in the original german uh 
Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that Bush is Bush short term shows is that they, they sort of increasingly how the Republican Party was at the behest of uncompromising conservatives. Uh, men like Grover Norquist is obviously still around today, um, and Americans uh, for tax reform who basically make you sign a pledge that you'll never raise taxes. Um, and obviously, as we heard at the beginning, uh, when Bush says, read my lips, no new taxes, he then, inherit, inheriting Reagan's huge deficit that he's left, decides, oh, I actually might need to raise taxes to meet that, um, and has to go back on it. And this very much loses him the support of these uncompromising conservatives, a lot of whom defect to first Patrick Buchanan in the primaries, but also... Um, Ross Perot, who's running as a third-party candidate in 1992, and is very is also maybe another harbinger of Donald Trump, um, in terms of the sort of the way he ran his campaign as a as a millionaire businessman, and I think as as you mentioned earlier, I think by this point the Republican Party's bought wholesale into supply side economics, or as it's used to be known maybe in the 1920s, as trickle down economics. This idea that the rich get richer, then it will trickle down, and people will be more employed because businesses will have more money to spend. I think that's the main lesson we can take from the Bush presidency. So if we can kind of, I'd like to really kind of, you know, start concluding our kind of like discussion of the 1990s now and move into the 2000s and up towards, you know, the the second Bush administration and then into towards the current candidacy of Donald Trump. Uh, but so by the 1990s, is it accurate to say the Republican Party seems pretty monolithically conservative? Or is it more about a change of tone rather than a change of ideology? I think by the 1990s it is pretty monolithic. I mean, you've got the outliers in Rhode Island and things like that, but they're eventually going to shift. Um, and But the main man in the 1990s is uh, one lovely Newt Gingrich. Um, and I remember once meeting someone who worked for uh, Hillary Clinton's staff uh, when she was trying to push healthcare reform in the early Clinton presidency. And they were talking about how they were getting along, things were working, there was some negotiation, and then Newt Gingrich comes onto the scene and everything is shut down instantly. It's hardball, there is no niceties, politics is a zero-sum game from this this point forward for Newt Gingrich and increasingly bullshit conservative Republicans who finally, after 50 years, take back control of Congress in 1994 with their famous contract with America. And... The 1990s is also characterised by this intense dislike of Bill Clinton. I mean, a lot of people say that the Obama hatred is is, is out of race, and there's there's definitely racial aspects there, but uh, you only have to go back to the 1990s to see how much uh, Republicans could hate a Democratic president who was white as well. As they're building up this seeming popularity, they end up overreaching. Um, when they when they try to impeach Bill Clinton for during the Lewinsky affair, something that actually boosts Clinton's pro, uh, like his popularity, and he sort of pulls off this minor miracle whereby in Clinton's final midterms, uh, which almost always go against the sitting president in the sixth year, he actually makes gains because the public are that put off by the Republicans' overreach. So let's move from the nineteen nineties into the two thousands. George W. Bush. Now often perceived, certainly on this side of the Atlantic in the UK, as a bit of a dumb, cowboy, conservative, right-winger. Is this kind of image of George W. Bush accurate? How conservative is he? And also, if I can tack another question onto the end of that, is it accurate to refer to George Bush as a neoconservative in the way that many of his leading advisors and associates, like Paul Wolfowitz, and you know Donald Rumsfeld and I think are kind of neoconservatives who come out of the 1970s and the Cold War and all that kind of thing. Um, I think that um, to, to a huge extent, uh, it's on the question of whether or not Bush is a neoconservative. I think it's it's the September the 11th attacks that make him into a neoconservative. When he'd run in 2000, it was as a critic of um, the sort of liberal interventions that. Bill Clinton had been pursuing overseas things like you know Kosovo um, um, and uh, uh, Somalia. Somalia, yes, blanking on the name there, but things like that. And he was talking about a much more um, a much more kind of modest and realistic foreign policy, <laughs> um, which could have worked out very well. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. There's this popular image, and particularly in the UK, of Bush as George W. Bush as a sort of crazy right winger, 
which when you put him within the universe of American conservatism, I don't think really works. I mean, Bush defines his own governing philosophy as compassionate conservative, conservatism. He'd run as a compassionate conservative in 2000, you know, well as promising to restore some honor and character to the White House, which is an obvious reference to Clinton. Um, and he, he puts, uh, he defines that in a speech in, in San Francisco in 2002. He says, it's compassionate to actively help our fellow citizens in need. It is conservative to insist on responsibility and results. So it's a reaction to this idea that Republicans are sort of callous and unfair feeling when it comes to the problems of the poor or marginalised in American society, which is still sort of a holdover from the Reagan era. And it's a reaction to that, the change of tone that you were just discussing, Mark, this very kind of aggressive, confrontational mm-hmm. conservatism that Gingrich pioneers in, in, in the 1990s. Um, and so you, you see Bush doing things that are very unusual for a Republican in, in um, in the early 21st century. So he supports uh, immigration reform, which is not a huge surprise given that he's a, a Republican from Texas, uh, which has a large uh, Hispanic p- uh, population. He supports and passes Medicare Part D, which is a very significant expansion of the Medicare program, uh, which subsidized prescription drugs for uh, for senior citizens. He also supports No Child Left Behind, um, which is a... a uh, he was co-sponsored actually with um, Ted Kennedy, uh, that sort of uh, notorious conservative. Um, and that's a reform of Lyndon Johnson's uh, Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which hugely expands the federal presence in education through new standardised tests and, you know, made funding contingent on schools meeting certain standards. And, you know, education had always been a really a, a hot-button issue for Republicans, defending the right of uh, uh, schools, uh, sort of school boards and of states to de- define their own sort of um, curriculums is important. You know, not only for um, in terms of defending uh, well, defending segregation, um, but also um, to defend the right to teach things like creationism. Um, so, a Republican president supporting this sort of huge expansion of the federal presence is, is I think, noteworthy. It's easy to overstate this, and you, sh- you shouldn't mm-hmm. you shouldn't do that. He, I mean, he also campaigns on a, a constitutional amendment to outlaw gay marriage in 2004. He tries and fails to partially privatize Social Security uh, in 2005. Um, but I think it is important to recognize that component of his political identity. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite easy. I mean, you're definitely right about all of that. I think Bush kind of governs from a different part of the GOP coalition to Reagan. You know, while Reagan Reagan was big on his economic conservatism and just sort of paid lip service to cultural conservatism. You sort of have Bush the opposite way around. He he makes sure to do the things on the cultural conservative side, such as banning stem cell research, restricting funding or even information on abortion. Um, but his presidency is a real mixed bag economically. And I'd sort of argue that the Tea Party wing is that, that rose up in 2010 is partly arises because Bush deviates from so much of this idea of shrinking government. In fact, he actually enlarges it in many ways. So, final point before we wrap things up then, Malcolm. Is there any coherence, would you say, to the foreign policy of the last 20 years in the Republican Party? You know, the Cold War is over. Um, Is it a continuation of Cold War policy or has there been a marked change? It's it's the classic historian's answer, continuity and change, which is what history is all about. (laughs) It is a cop-out. This this is going to be very brief and very simplistic. I mean, the move to, I mean, this is super simplistic, a post-Cold War multipolar world presents many different challenges to the, I mean, compared to the so-called bipolarity of the Cold War, I mean, you can argue about the bipolarity of the Cold War till the, till the cows come home. But I think 9-11 is, is dramatic and it gives the Bush administration the foreign policy coherence that it previously lacked. You know, in, in a sense, the war on terror is almost a return to a bipolar them and us, good versus evil, Manichaean paradigm that characterised the Cold War. I think it's also the similarity of the war on terror being fundamentally an ideal, <laughs> ideological conflict. I think fundamentally ideological, although I would have to stress I disagree entirely with the Huntingtonian analysis that characterises all of this as a so-called clash of civilizations, which was adopted by many within the Bush administration. Huntington's ideas on a clash of civilization, the ideas of Bernard Lewis, particularly drawing from his, his foundational article, The Roots of Muslim Rage, and all that kind of thing, informed many of the foreign policy ideals of the, the Bush administration going into the war on terror. But I think we are in a position where we 
I don't think can really analyse the foreign policy of the last 20 years of the Republicans. That's because it, it's like analysing the Cold War while it's going on. It's like analysing World, World War Two while you're in the middle of bi- fa- fighting the Battle of Stalingrad. <laughs> it's, we need historical perspective. That would have been this. impressive. Uh, <laughs> so I think let's sum all this up and let's finally get round uh, to the uh, the Republican of the day, uh, Donald Trump. I mean, how can we explain the rise of Donald Trump as it relates to the Republican Party? I mean, is there anything in recent history that helps us understand, you know, the rise of the New York tycoon with a dead fox stapled to his head? I think if we could fully describe it, then we would be employed in some very high-paying jobs in the, new, in the American journalist industry. But I'd say there's a couple of things that we can look at. Um, Donald Trump very much is appealing to the same sort of economic insecurity um, the economic insecurity message of old sort of Reagan Democrats, um, whereby you you sort of set up this this bogeyman that's coming to maybe take this this sharing in the spoils. I it used to be African Americans that were getting the benefit of government largesse. Now it's Mexican Americans, Mexican Americans and immigrants who are coming in to steal your jobs. Um, so it's just a change in the bogeyman, um, and also. He's very pro-business. There's, you know, like there's no one more pro-business than Trump is, um, and the Republican Party has always very much been on board with that message. And it's, and it's great, great business. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's terrific, brilliant but, business. But he is completely different in foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, you have to go back, you would know this, to the beginning of the Cold War to find mainstream Republicans arguing for a real retreat from the global stage. And also culturally, this sort of New York values that Ted Cruz said. I mean, it's no no coincidence that the two groups that are really disowning Trump are the foreign policy establishment of the Bush White House and uh, the sort of your cultural conservative groups. Um, and the final word on Trump, I'll say I'm on record saying I think he'll lose. I thought that the Republican would lose even before uh, they nominated Trump. What I would say is if this election was 1980, um, Trump would stand a lot greater of a chance um, just in terms of I think he has a similar appeal to Reagan a lot different but there's a similar similarity there yeah I think um, Trump is running with the wrong electorate um, I agree with everything you just said there Mark but just to append to what one little thing I think the um, the really intriguing thing about or one of the intriguing things about Donald Trump's candidacy is that it has revealed how limited the appeal of uh, uh, anti-statism is within the Republican coalition see Donald Trump Trump is not uh, campaigning to roll back the government. You know, he supported a public option in healthcare at various points. He's not saying, you know, government is incompetent, we need to get rid of it. He's saying government is incompetent, stacked with losers, and we need to get Donald Trump in there to sort it out. Um, so I, I, I think that he represents in many respects a, a, a real kind of identity crisis for many, for many Republicans who I think thought they were leading a very different coalition. Well, I think now that we've reached Trump and we've had a very brief analysis of his electoral chances, uh, we should probably probably wrap up there. You never know, historians have been known to be wrong. We may be recording a future episode from a bunker sheltering from radioactive fallout after uh, President Trump has decided uh, to take action against whoever his enemy is today. Uh, so you never know. But thank you very much for joining us, Paddy. And we look forward to welcoming you back uh, to discuss uh, the Democrats and their evolution from the 1960s on our next episode. So thank you Paddy and thank you Mark thank you very much Malcolm and just to point out to listeners check your feed as soon as the Republican convention is over because that's when the road to Hillary Clinton podcast will be released 